Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to play a little clip from a fellow podcaster who's just starting out. It's a fantastic podcast on the history of the continent of North America and the people and nations that make it up. It's a lovely little bite-sized history show, well worth checking. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone. Nice to have you back. Life here remains hectic, so I'm grateful for all the support from all of you lovely listeners and patrons. I'm sorry this show is late, but it turned into a long one with mountains of research, just as I'm organising a house move and lockdown. I'd like to thank new patron, respectable governess, Roxandra, for your support. I'd also like to say thank you to Russell from Australia for your kind donation. I'm sorry this show is late, but I hope that it's worth the wait. I'd like to give a couple of quick recommendations for you as well. First, I've been sent a copy of the Pentonville Experiment by Dr. Lewis Owens. It is a fascinating meditation on Victorian prisons through a religious lens. One of the biggest differences between us and the Victorians is the extent to which religion permeated their society. This book captures that very well. You can feel the religious well-meaning combined with dogma and lack of knowledge that Dr. Owens skillfully teases out of his characters. It isn't a long read, but it will be a pleasant weekend diversion. And I found best used as a sort of springboard meditation on the issues of law, reform and redemption. Not only is it a lovely read, but it is particularly relevant as we look at the penal colonies in the Australias and soon the dreaded Port Arthur prison in Van Diemen's land. My next recommendation is that you have a listen to the Australian Histories podcast with Jenny whilst we explore Empire and Australia. It is well presented and delightful. There's plenty of depth and a wonderful range of topics that overlap our period. I've given her shout outs before as I'm a big fan of her show and she's great. By coincidence, just as I was recording this, I saw her latest episode is out and covers some amazing events in Tasmania. So please have a listen. I've also had a couple of lovely listener reviews. 
first from Javasku03. Quote, just wanted to say I love this show. I am relatively late to the party. I've been listening for about a year, starting with episode one and just finishing the mini-sode on titles and tiaras. I predominantly listen while jogging, which makes an unpleasant activity semi-enjoyable. I hope to get all caught up by the end of the year. End quote. Well, anyone who goes jogging has my sympathies, and I hope that my show continues to help all of you exercise sufferers out there. As you know, whenever I get the urge to be energetic, I have a whiskey until it passes. Next is one from Windmerp in New Zealand. Five stars. Quote, this is one of the best history podcasts out there. Excellent combination of narrative, analysis and opinion presented in an engaging manner. I'm usually rather lazy about reviews, but with just one review here and a mere handful of followers on Facebook, this podcast is clearly not getting the exposure it deserves. End quote. That's really kind of you. I do this show to educate and entertain as many people as I can, so I'm glad it is reaching people around the world. But yes, they do say word of mouth is the best advertising. So, if you are listening to this and have enjoyed the results of the hard work that goes into it, can you do me a favour and tell some of your friends or recommend it on Facebook or Twitter? Also, this show reaches people worldwide. Tens of thousands of you download it. In the last three years, there have been hundreds of thousands of listeners. Barely any leave a review. My challenge then is I'd like to get 10 more reviews per country by Christmas. I know you are out there, my lovely listeners in Norway, Germany, Mexico, Canada and Sweden. I have proof of people in France and Monaco listening. I know my vocal Aussies have made a strong start in the reviews. So, my gallant band of listeners, do your country proud and get reviewing. Don't leave it to someone else. Take action yourself. The winning nation will be announced in the New Year special. Today, we are going to be talking about a place called Van Diemen's Land. If you aren't familiar with the term, Van Diemen's Land is now called Tasmania. I must warn listeners, that this episode includes references to genocide, perhaps one of the least well-known but most complete pieces of genocide committed by the British Empire, followed by the process of turning Van Diemen's land from a wild west of frontier conflict, bushrangers and cannibals, into a formal prison for those prisoners too bad or dangerous for the penal colonies of mainland Australia, and then into something else, a new nation, a land that was a true melting pot of people and commerce in the Victorian era. This show also contains some racist language from original source materials, so listener discretion is advised, especially if you have children listening with you. Also, a brief note on place names. Tasmania was known as Van Diemen's Land in the early European settlement era and the early Victorian period. That is obviously not the name used by the indigenous peoples. According to the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, the indigenous people called it La Truwita in Palawa Kani, the language of the Tasmanian Aboriginals. I am going to use the English names for this episode 
as I don't want to either make mistakes, cause confusion, or butcher pronunciations. This piece of ancient land was once connected to mainland Australia to its north by a land bridge and was settled by three waves of Aboriginal migrants. Around 6000 BC or so, the land bridge was gone and Van Diemen's land was cut off. It was now one of the most isolated spots in the Southern Hemisphere. The indigenous inhabitants became a distinctive cultural group separate from the groups on the mainland continent of Australia. The inhabitants developed bark canoes, fire-hardened wooden spears, fishing technologies and fire clearance management. Soon, they started to burn the rainforests of the central highlands to clear land and by 3000 BCE, the whole of Van Diemen's land was occupied, albeit with very, very low population densities. This style of life continued for thousands of years until in 1642, when smoke from the fires was noticed by Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. The Europeans now knew there was land to explore. What a land it was! As you know, I enjoy words and pride myself on a wide vocabulary. Tasmania defies easy description. Like New Zealand, the landscape is almost Tolkien-esque in places. From cliffs that look sculpted with giant chisel marks, strange and angled, creating an interplay of light and dark at Cape Huey, to sweeping tropical bays with golden beaches and turquoise waters, to waterfalls like dip forms in the north where water cascades over cubes of basalt. The windswept Tasmanian peninsula is made of cracking, pillared cliffs of dolomite covered in tough bushes with spectacular views out to sea. If you stand there and look south, there is nothing but sea until you hit the Antarctic. You are at the very edge of the world. Around the peninsula, the sea is filled with fur seals, dolphins, whales, fairy penguins and possums on the shore. The perfect spot, the British would think, for the dreaded Port Arthur prison, a place to send prisoners, considered the worst of the worst. There are huge expanses of forest too, with mossy floors and busy canopies often broken by rocky rivers. In other places, there are huge temperate rainforests, bordering coasts with sweeping stormy beaches interrupted by rocky outgrowths, looking like a mix of Caribbean paradise and stormy Californian beaches. Above the city of Hobart rises Mount Wellington, and in the west are the moors and mountain ranges that have been compared to the Alps. Some of those mountains would eventually yield gold, copper and silver, leading to the inevitable railway and mining booms. There's also what is now called the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers National Park, almost a cross between the Appalachian Mountains and the great forests of New England and Canada. The climate is varied and in many ways much more forgiving than mainland Australia, cooler and often wetter yet with extremes of heat, flooding and even snow, especially on the beautiful Mount Wellington near Hobart. In terms of weather, the Climate Travel Guide says 
quote, The climate of Tasmania is oceanic on the coasts, with mild rainy winters and cool summers, while it is colder in the interior. Being that it's in the southern hemisphere, the seasons are naturally reversed compared to North America or Europe. So in July or August, it is winter. Tasmania is the southernmost state of Australia. At these latitudes, the island is located between 40 and 43 degrees south latitude. The westerlies prevail throughout the year, so the weather is variable, with a series of disturbances that lead to rainfall, especially on the western side of the island. The wind blows frequently as well. Cold air masses from Antarctica can reach the state most of the year. They have to cover a great distance above the ocean, so they become a bit mitigated and are felt mainly in inland elevations, where they can bring snowfalls and frosts. On the other hand, short heat waves from the Australian desert can affect the island in summer, December to February. Rainfall is frequent throughout the year, with a maximum in winter and a minimum in summer. However, it varies greatly in quantity, since the bulk of the rain falls on the western side, end quote. Cut off from the continental mainland, Tasmania developed a distinct ecosystem, and the indigenous peoples had their own unique, isolated cultures. The Aboriginal culture on Van Diemen's land had been developing in isolation from the mainland Australian Aboriginal cultures, giving it a unique identity of its own. The indigenous people were shocked when they first were contacted by the Europeans. Can you imagine how that must have felt? Creatures almost alien to them. Instead of living in the traditional way and fishing and hunting, they came in huge ships with loud weapons that killed outside bowshot. They talked in strange ways and spoke of a strange god through their interpreters. They fenced in the land the tribes were used to walk in. They ignored the time-honoured ways to make decisions. They said strange rules applied, even though the natives had never asked for them, so they weren't allowed to raid their farms or take their women. From the European point of view, the indigenous peoples had been on a fertile land for thousands of years, yet were still walking round in loincloths with spears. They had not bothered to develop a civilization. Despite the obvious opportunities, they refused to hear the gospel of Christ to save their soul, and they were in the way of good Christian settlers who had come to fulfil God's command of being fruitful and multiplying in return for dominion over the land and seas. They ignored the sacred rights of property and sometimes engaged in raids for fun rather than honest conquest and military necessity often raping female captives. It is hard to know, though, how much of this is right. We don't get to have the authentic voices of the indigenous side of the debate. Accounts we have from their point of view come filtered through the white settlers, even when the settlers were trying to help the indigenous people, and a small number actually were at least as far as they saw it. Those accounts still come through interpreters and through that prism of cultural misunderstanding. Back in Europe, the Dublin Journal was very clear what it thought of the indigenous people. Quote, the islanders resemble the African Negro in physiognomy much more than the natives of the continent. The hair of the former is woolly, whereas of the latter 
is coarse and straight. Both races are equally free from any tradition of origin or acquaintance with each other, although their barbarism seems at the extreme pitch. Their languages are entirely different, and it is probable that they never had any connection with each other. The barbarism of the few inhabitants of this island is said to equal that of the New Hollanders. By New Holland, he means the Australian mainland. So you can see there was a lot of racist prejudice here from an Irish writer who had almost certainly never seen Van Diemen's Land or met any of its inhabitants. When it was founded, the tiny British colony in New South Wales on mainland Australia was only a fingerhold on the vast continent. It seemed inevitable that the French would try a landing, a military conquest of some kind. The obvious first step in preventing them was establishing an outpost further along the south coast in Port Phillip Bay near modern-day Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. That's right down at the bottom. The two sites were unsuccessful and had to be abandoned. Although the area would eventually become a very prosperous city and province and was ironically to see the foundation of the city of Melbourne by settlers returning from Van Diemen's land, news reached Governor King that the French had dispatched two ships to carry out a reconnaissance expedition. A British expedition to claim Van Diemen's land was therefore strategically essential. It would keep the French out and keep British control of the seas around southern Australia viable. According to the National Maritime Museum of Tasmania, quote, the first settlers arrived at Sullivan's Cove, now known as Hobart, with Lieutenant Governor David Collins in 1804. A few came specifically to establish farms, but others were members of the military and civil establishment who opted to remain in the colony. A similar settlement was soon formed on the Tamar River in northern Tasmania, and a few years later, numbers were boosted by the arrival of Norfolk Islanders. However, the number of free settlers remained small until the 1820s when land grants, based on the amount of money brought into the colony, were offered to suitable people with letters of recommendation. Many properties in the best farming areas between Launceston and Hobart Town were established by these immigrants. End quote. Strictly speaking, though, the first attempt at settlement was at Risdon, Tasmania, on the 11th of September, 1803, when Lieutenant Bowen landed with about 80 settlers, including women, children and babies, plus sailors, soldiers, convicts and a priest. But it was a complete failure. Collins had previously failed in an attempt to settle in Victoria on the coast of Australia. His landing in 1803 was the first real attempt at settlement in Van Diemen's land. Almost inevitably, hugely controversial event occurred. There was a notorious incident that has split historians and the Aboriginal rights community, as well as journalists and politicians. It is what is known as the Risdon Cove Massacre. In summary, it appears that Risdon's deputy, Lieutenant Moore, encountered what he deemed hostile natives and, fearing for his party and the settlement, he ordered firing 
to disperse the approaching natives, as he deemed them, he wrote to Governor Collins to explain the situation, stating that a large number of natives, perhaps 500 strong, had arrived and beaten a farmer, then armed themselves and menaced some soldiers. Five soldiers were directed to protect a woman returning to camp with supplies, whilst two others were sent to protect the farmer under orders not to fire unless strictly necessary. A general disturbance was alleged and it appeared, according to Lieutenant Moore, that the larger number of hostile natives required military response, so cannons were fired to push the natives off the camp. Soldiers and conflicts killed a number of natives in a confused melee. There was another encounter a few days later between the military and armed natives. Soon after, wisdom was abandoned and the governor himself focused on Hobart. But rumours swirled even at the time and other British visitors, including a surveyor who interviewed eyewitnesses, became convinced the natives hadn't acted in a hostile manner at all. Instead, it appeared that Lieutenant Moore had either lost his head and panicked or had deliberately decided to massacre people to instill fear of the power of the British military in the native tribes, perhaps due to racism or just on the basis that like a Roman arriving in a yet unpacified territory, it was best Rome was seen as invincible and to be feared from the start. Ironically, a full committee of inquiry was convened years later by Governor Sir George Arthur, whom we will talk about later in this episode, as he oversees the genocide of the native population. The committee took a lot of evidence, much of it conflicting, and there was some hearsay. They concluded it was at least established that the natives had arrived in large numbers hunting kangaroos. This included a lot of old men, women and children, which the committee felt was a clear indication that this was a peaceful group out hunting rather than a war party who would not have had non-combatants with them. The committee did find that the farmer had built his farm further out from the main camp, probably in the middle of the hunting grounds, and that whilst he was assaulted by natives, it was only because the natives were annoyed that their hunting ground was suddenly and unexpectedly blocked, without permission. Nor was it felt they wanted to kill the farmer, simply turf him off a spot he wasn't entitled to. The military response was deemed excessive and the committee concluded at least 50 natives had been killed without good cause, provoking hostility to settlers across Van Diemen's land and dangerously increasing tensions. The narrative around the event became highly contentious. Many Victorians, later studying it, felt it was an outrage and a stain on civilization. Others felt the whole point of being a military power was to become the Darwinian fittest society of strong men to create good times, with weaker societies, as they deemed it, destined to be wiped out by their evolutionary superiors. As World War II approached, some later historians went into even darker territory, claiming it was not the British civilization had evolved to be better fitted to survival, but that the British themselves were a superior race. And as historian Giblin said in 1939, quote, 
Was Wisden Cove the root cause of all subsequent troubles between the whites and the blacks? Little can be said in favour of this theory. It was inevitable that the native people should fade away before the more vigorous race. End quote. Modern historians have clashed bitterly over the issue, with witness accounts, maps and timings poured over to see who might really have been able to see what and when. Many of the witnesses who claimed the British started the massacre hadn't actually been eyewitnesses, whilst others who were eyewitnesses and did blame the British hadn't been considered in many popular accounts. I've read at least one academic paper where the author accuses other historians of racist attempts to protect modern white communities in their continued theft of native lands. Other historians have pointed out the events of the massacre and, over-focusing on it, erase the -the on-the-ground interactions between settlers, convicts, stockmen and natives that did include a degree of cooperation in favour of a natives versus rich British incomers narrative. One historian has pointed out the transfer of Risdon Cove back to native ownership raises questions of how reconciliation can go forward if the white settler descendants, often themselves displaced from their homes in England, Scotland and especially famine-hit Ireland, are suddenly told they need to go back home, yet having had no ties to their ancestors' homelands for centuries. But this conflict and tension was a constant feature of colonial life and imperial life in Tasmania. The colony in Van Diemen's Land was small in the Napoleonic War period. It was in a constant state of starvation and desperately reliant on irregular visits from supply vessels. In 1806, even bread was running out. Frantic colonists turned to mass kangaroo hunting to prevent starvation, increasing the conflict with the indigenous tribes who were experiencing pressure on their own hunting grounds. It must have felt like the end of the world itself for the settlers. The settlement clung grimly on though. The colony was officially part of the New South Wales colony with its governor reporting to the mainland governor. The first governor of Van Diemen's Land, Lieutenant General Thomas Davy, cordially hated his superior officer in New South Wales, the intelligent and energetic Governor Lachlan Macquarie. Davy loved his drink and was nicknamed Mad Tom by the locals. He resented Macquarie issuing orders, cramping his style by insisting on obeying the law and poking his nose into Mad Tom's dodgy handling of the colony's finance. Mad Tom had previous form for fiddling army contracts and was specifically forbidden by the British government from handling the finances, which were supposed to only be done by Macquarie. Mad Tom considered Macquarie a stuck-up aristocratic Scottish prig, whilst Macquarie considered him a brutal, dishonest drunk. Mad Tom's habit of drinking from barrels in public or engaging in drinking bouts at the infamous local tavern with known convict cronies didn't help him, nor did his habit of bursting into random houses and demanding drinks. Matters weren't helped 
by Mad Tom declaring martial law without permission to try and clamp down on the notorious bushrangers, what we might call bandits. We were talking about the Wild West, which is what Van Damon's land was resembling. The laws were patchy and absent, the frontier open, and the criminals abounded. Macquarie issued a badly worded amnesty to the bushrangers, which legally allowed them to commit even more crimes before submitting. Mad Tom was further enraged that Macquarie ordered wheat from India to feed the starving colonists in New South Wales, which cut Van Diemen's land out of the infant wheat market, threatening the tiny foothold farmers had gained. He bitterly resented the distant Macquarie dumping dangerous convicts on him then tying his hands from dealing with an increasingly lawless situation. He had too few military resources and too many convicts needing a hanging. Well, except for his drinking buddies, of course. By 1816, Mad Tom was sacked, leaving an administration in chaos and a very suspicious absence of any financial records for multiple government contracts. He took himself off Italy to become a farmer which he totally failed at, before dying prematurely. He was replaced by William Sorrell, who declared Van Damen's land was peopled by, quote, the most depraved and unprincipled people in the universe, end quote, a tough ex-soldier and experienced colonial administrator from South Africa. He patiently built up police and military capabilities, crushed a notorious bandit gang, and then secured key farming areas from bandit raids. He also dramatically reformed the administration and financial systems, though he couldn't stop the rampant debasement of the local coinage. Under his watch, the settler population grew, but the convict population rose from 18% of the tiny population to 58% of the colony, as the colony grew to around 12,000 people. In 1821, determined to resist the total breakdown of the colony to anarchy, he decided to build what was to become a dark legend and the subject of our next main episode, the penal settlement at Port Arthur on the eastern coast of Van Diemen's Land, near the city of Hobart. He described it as, quote, the place of ultimate banishment and punishment, end quote. By the 1820s, the settlers were looking to expand from the toeholds they held on the coast and start to penetrate into the interior. The climate at least seemed better than the baking heat of the mainland and land could potentially be more productive than back in England. As a bonus, it's likely some of the Londoners and other city dwellers were benefiting from far higher air quality and sanitation due to lower population densities, Sorong's iron military grip meant that productive farmland could be opened, secure if not totally safe. He encouraged entrepreneurship and incentivized prisoners by providing post-sentence government employment backed by harsh discipline and plentiful hangings. Don't think such measures were unnecessary. During one work detail, a prisoner seized an axe and split the skull of the man in front of him. When asked why he did it, he replied he was addicted to smoking 
and hadn't had any tobacco for so long that he couldn't control his temper. He was given a last smoke before the gallows, at least. Unfortunately, besides his many talents and highly competent governorship, Sol had an enormous weakness for women and sex. He had already abandoned his wife and seven children in South Africa. In Van Diemen's land, he had an affair with a fellow officer's wife, a scandalous breach of the Code of Honour, and moved her into the governor's mansion as his official lady, and had several children with her. Of course, marriages do fail, and divorce was very difficult in the ultra-religious 19th century, so be a bit careful about assuming he was just a rake. He might very well have divorced and remarried had it been allowed. Local business rivals began complaining and spreading rumours of his sexual freeness, leading to his removal and replacement by a man who was to become infamous and one of the most controversial, perhaps, in British imperial history. Still, the colony was forming an uneasy sense of identity, and it was something new, part strange alien world, part prison hell, part freeport for adventurers and whalers, part bush-ranging anarchy, part farming breadbasket. Ironically, cultural fusion had begun quickly when the infamous Captain Bly visited in 1788 and planted the first apple trees, or at least that's what the Tasmanian Tourist Board assures me. Apples certainly arrived with the first fleet and would become an Australian staple before being cultivated into the Granny Smith variety in 1868 and re-exported around the world. Think about what a colossal piece of history that really is. After all, apples not only provide vital calories and vitamins in a highly portable form that was unknown in Australia and Tasmania, but also they could be used to produce what Sir Terry Pratchett called the world's first biofuel, known to us as cider. If Tasmania had only provided apples and timber to the Victorians, it would have been incredibly valuable. Yet Mandamas land was soon to start producing another great staple of human cuisine, whiskey. In 1822, a noble visionary named Thomas Hugh Midwood opened the first distillery in Van Diemen's land. This unsung hero was soon supplying whiskey to the 50,000 colonists. Imagine living on a hard frontier without the blessings of aqua vita, the water of life, or in Scottish, whisky beeth. Sadly, such heroes are rarely appreciated in their own time. Alas, the New South Wales governor's wife, Lady Jane Franklin, despised drinking and complained bitterly to her husband that, quote, I would prefer barley to be fed to pigs than it be used to turn men into swine, end quote. This dastardly attack caused the shutdown of the nascent whisky industry in Tasmania on the 1st of January, 1839, for the next 150 years. What an opportunity was missed. Today, the Australian and Tasmanian whisky industries producing world-class bottlings. Let's be clear, while she might have had legitimate concerns about convicts drinking to excess, the decision also impacted non-convicts and, of course, would not hit the upper classes who would continue to enjoy 
imported French wines and brandies. I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on her ladyship, since she was pretty arse-kicking in her own way, exploring parts of Australia overland, engaging in charity work, then later financing repeated Arctic expeditions. When her husband disappeared during his infamous attempt to find the North West Passage in 1845, notable achievements, I suppose, that could almost make up for her vile misdeeds towards God's own amber nectar? Hmm. The seeds of the vicious conflict were being sown. Periods of drought and the loss of the hunting grounds to farming added food stresses to the triggers for violence. Escaped prisoners turned bushrangers, robbed and killed the indigenous people. Freed convicts turned farming. Then when they failed at this, often joined the bushrangers. What was worse was that the gender imbalance meant that some white male settlers looked for sex with the native women, with or without consent. The native tribes reacted with significant reprisals, sometimes indiscriminately, and the cycle of violence grew into what has been called the Black War. Even this term is historically contentious. The British at the time called it a war. Some historians consider it a genocide, whilst others maintain it falls outside the definitions and was a proper war. The debate can get heated, even today. There is another phrase, though, that some say captures this better. Ria Warawe, in the indigenous Tasmanian language. In English, it translates to both a concept of great evil and apocalypse. For the indigenous peoples, that was what it was in many ways, and very few would survive. Disease ravaged the population when the Europeans first made contact, and now the British would finish them off. In 1869, a man named William Lane, also known as King Billy, died. He was the last acknowledged full-blooded indigenous Tasmanian male, and by 1876, the last full-blooded indigenous Tasmanian woman, called Truganini, also died. The last of the indigenous peoples carry on past this apocalypse with the mixed-race descendants of the indigenous tribes and the European newcomers. In a final indignity, William Lane's corpse was cut up for souvenirs by eager, eager doctors, something Professor Stephen Petro calls a mutilation of the body and a metaphor for the mutilation and carving up of Tasmania itself by the settlers. According to an article in The Conversation, Quote, Aboriginal attacks soared from 20 in 1824 to 259 in 1830. War parties torched dozens of properties, plundered hundreds of homes and speared thousands of sheep and cattle. Even more devastating was the human toll. 223 colonists killed and 226 wounded. This represents an annual per capita death rate two and a half times higher than that of the Australians in World War II. Almost every colonist lost somebody they knew. The war's 200 or so Aboriginal survivors, exiled to Flinders Island in the early 1830s, lost nearly everyone they knew, together with their country and their way of life. End quote. War, genocide, conquest or settlement. The result was a terrible loss of life for everyone. Van Diemen's Land 
had enough strategic significance and economic value to ensure that the British would not tolerate losing it, unlike some of the more economically marginal colonies in New Zealand, where the Maori and low farm yields made them less viable. The continued flood of new colonists, free or convict, meant that sheer attrition would finish off the indigenous peoples. Not that this would be much comfort to the individual settlers, many of whom were former city dwellers who never even held a gun, let alone had to go into hand-to-hand combat against native peoples who were familiar with close combat and were masters of the terrain. Convicts and ex-convicts couldn't choose to opt out and say they were as much victims of the British government as the native peoples. That cut no ice. Besides, the tribes weren't a unified people under a single leader. They had their own distinct identities and politics. Some raids were attacks at British power, but others were for food, or even as part of the older tradition of raiding to demonstrate prowess within the tribe. The British authorities couldn't negotiate easily, therefore even when they were inclined to, so they made preemptive attacks mixed with punitive actions. Tribes didn't get on with each other and there were many documented instances where native guides would refuse to cross into another tribe's territories as they were enemies. Things weren't easy for the colonists though, quite apart from the food situation. They were armed at best with the brown best musket as a fine weapon for a Napoleonic battlefield when deployed en masse by trained troops against large masses of enemy soldiers, it was much less suitable for colonial service. Brown Bess wasn't a totally useless weapon. It had a reasonable rate of fire for the time and was pretty accurate at short range, with plenty of punch. At closer ranges, it could penetrate two people and had a muzzle velocity 1,600-1,700 foot per second. That's up there with a 357 Magnum. It would go through any armour of the day. It fired a beast of a .75 calibre ball that would cause a reasonably large hole going in, then deforming to the size of a pancake as the soft lead ripped through the body and out, leaving a large exit wound. So if it hit a man at close range, he went down. You could learn to use it easily, and it had rock-solid reliability. Drop it, hit stuff with it, urinate down the barrel to clear the gunpowder, residues that had built up, put a fresh flint in, and it would still be serviceable. It was slow to load and fire compared to later Victorian cartridge rifles. It was heavy and cumbersome, wildly inaccurate at long range. This was a big deficit for this kind of war. The enemy was mobile, highly motivated, and needed to get into hand-to-hand quickly due to their lack of firearms. The colonists' lack of a long-range, rapid-firing weapon allowed the native tribes to close the distance into melee range and put the colonists in a dreadful position tactically. Where still, the climate of Tasmania wasn't well-suited for the musket, as the damp and rain ruined the gunpowder. But don't believe the myth that a musket only hit things if it was lucky. If you were within 50 yards, it was possible to hit a target with good accuracy, since civilians would typically be using the gun to either kill
kill wildlife or defend themselves, engagements could be far less than that, and being hit by a musket ball was brutal and invariably fatal, or at least catastrophically injuring. Actually, it was often the quality of the bullets and the poor fit down the muzzle that was the problem. The better fitted the ammunition, the more accurate the musket could be. Muskets still fired a spherical ball, further reducing accuracy. But at 100 yards or less, they could be fearsome and accurate for a good marksman. For the British regular soldiers en masse, the drawbacks of the musket were lessened. Constant training and time on the range improved performance. Mass volleys ensured higher hit rates. Ammunition supplies were better too. Soldiers were trained and drilled to maintain their weapons. On top of that, unlike the civilians, the soldiers were more prepared to engage in close quarter combat. Time and again, throughout the Victorian Empire, opponents of the British believed that if you could get past the volley fire into hand-to-hand, then victory was certain. They often found it a terrible mistake, as the British troops could be ferocious in close combat and sometimes actively sort it out over long-range engagements. The bayonet on the end of the musket gave the soldier a good reach with what was effectively a spear, and the heavy brass butt could shatter bones. Give it to a six-foot Scotsman or Irishman, or a hulking farmer from Dorset, and it could be a brutal prospect to face. Still, overall, it was better for the British regular troops to rely on firepower. If you put them side by side, there wasn't actually much difference between the late Georgian or early Victorian soldier and a lot of their opponents, apart from the very first musket shot. The British soldier was essentially entirely unarmoured. He had no camouflage, helmet or body armour. He still wore the red coat and Seiko cap in the main. Once the shot was fired, he had what was basically a mix of spear and club to defend himself until he reloaded. The indigenous tribal fighters had the opportunity to seize British muskets and use them in a similar manner to the Maori in New Zealand. It has been speculated that the Tasmanian tribes were well aware of the weapon's limitations and found little benefit in using it, preferring to adapt their tactics to drawing out an early volley from the British with feints, then rushing them whilst they reloaded. The Brown Bess herself was in a period of transition to obsolescence. The new Brunswick rifle, a sort of improved Baker rifle, was entering service in the late 1830s and the percussion cap was making firearms much more reliable. But issuing them to troops was piecemeal at best. Life wasn't exactly easy even for the regular troops in the 1820s and 1830s. Tactics and structures almost frozen in time from Waterloo. Soldiers wore the bright red jackets which stood out against the forest terrain and carried either brown best muskets or Brunswick rifles. The knapsacks carried were worse than the old Waterloo ones. They were hated. Local commanders usually ditched them. For the individual troops the shock of deployment could be immense. Private John Clark enlisted into the 17th Regiment in Leicester in July 1829. After eight weeks of drill at a depot in Chatham, he was sent to Hobart Town as a trained soldier to join a service company in Hobart 
where his training would be broadened by experience. He was 17 years old. He would be sent to a territory where the local population was conducting a lightning guerrilla war. His pay was low. His boots would have given him hell. His weapon was clumsy and slow. And he was wearing a bright red impractical uniform that stood out from all of the green terrain. To kill his enemy, he needed to be up close. Doesn't this sound a bit familiar to history fans and military veterans, perhaps reminding them of the Vietnam era? Service in Australia or Van Diemen's Land was loathed by many soldiers who viewed it as either unworthy of a warrior to be forced to be a prison guard or too insanely dangerous with the possibility of starving to death or being killed and eaten. 22 men of the 17th deserted when they learnt they were to be shipped to Van Diemen's Land. Regiments often broken up into small company elements serving in New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land. That affected unit morale and broke up bonds between the soldiers. For the troops, there was the additional problem that nothing in their training or combat doctrines was geared for the kind of campaigning they would have to do. Initiative, independent action, open order, field craft, ambush and scouting were what were needed. But these were the job of the light companies or the rifle regiments. The main line soldier had these qualities beaten out or drilled out of him. Order and discipline was the lodestone of the army because it had won Waterloo and was therefore part of the God-ordained hierarchy. The British army certainly didn't want to send out the kind of forces that were really needed. Elite rifle regiments to mount commando raids, mounted infantry acting as dragoons with high mobility, light troops to scout and skirmish, naval artillery and their crew to provide mobile firepower, engineers and a decent commissariat. Nor were any of the excellent officers learning their trade in India going to be sent. Many of these future legends of the Indian frontier did double duty as intelligence officers, so that resource was not available in Van Diemen's land either. Food remained grim and scarce. This was still very much the Georgian army of Wellington and the Duke of York. Troops and the governor, Sir George Arthur, would cut their rations once they were out of barracks to save money. Morale was low and unit cohesion was weak. In a way, you can understand this. This wasn't a war for riches and glory, as the army saw the actions in India. Instead, it was a convict guard station problem, where the civilian population was supposed to find a way to coexist with the natives. That was never going to happen, of course. Instead, the troops were often acting in both civilian and military roles. They were supposedly only there to support the civilian authorities and defend against French incursion or convict uprising. After all, on some views, the indigenous people were now British subjects and therefore entitled to the same legal rights as other British people once they submitted to British rule. Until martial law was later declared, soldiers could be prosecuted for killing a fleeing native, but could also be prosecuted if they let a fleeing raider, enemy or criminal get away. Officers were pressed to be magistrates in a dual role, and the line between the civilian and military establishments was dangerously blurred, as Sir George Arthur 
began redistricting the landscape and preparing to increase his grip on the territories. Legal niceties were ignored when convenient, and murder of the natives was often ignored. Technically, Sir George Arthur was in the dual role of civilian administrator and army officer. In the latter role, he was supposed to be under the command of Lieutenant General Darling, stationed in New South Wales. But in reality, like Mad Tom before him, he operated entirely independently. He was happy to mislead superiors in London too, and shape his own instructions. He was, however, a competent military officer, and would come to blend military, paramilitary, civilians and irregulars into an effective military instrument, given the limitations, though it was never going to achieve total military victory. The British military in the colony weren't the best the army had to offer by a long stretch. No ambitious officer sought a posting in Van Diemen's land. The best army regiments weren't going to be sent to an isolated prison island to eke out an existence with convicts and what would have been seen as a savage native population. Instead, regiments were sent in rotation and in dribs and drabs over two to three years. It would be rare for a regiment's entire strength to be gathered in normal times anyway. They would be moved around from Van Diemen's Land to Australia to India and then back to the UK. They were usually accompanied at least by the vital engineers. Most troops wanted to end their rotation quickly but the constant changes of troops meant active combat experience on the ground was hard to gain and quickly lost. The high-quality artillery the British relied on in Spain and at Waterloo and in India was notably absent. There was no good reason for the Navy to spend time there and the Victorian gunboat, the famous answer to almost any political and military problem, was not available until after the Crimean War which was decades away. There were heroics and atrocities on both sides, but eventually the outcome of the Black War was certain. The governor, Sir George Arthur, complained to his superiors in London in 1826 that, quote, We are undoubtedly the first aggressors, and the desperate characters amongst the prisoner population, who have from time to time absconded into the woods, have no doubt committed the greatest outrages on the natives, and these ignorant beings, incapable of discrimination, are now filled with enmity and revenge, hence the whole body of white inhabitants. It is perhaps in vain at this time to trace the cause of the evil which exists. My duty is plainly to remove its effects, and there does not appear any practical method of accomplishing this measure, short of entirely prohibiting the Aborigines from entering the settled districts. So George decided to partition the island and put in place a military line known as the Black Line between the settlers' territory and the area he had decided was for the natives. Tension amongst the colonists was fraught. They worried about being on their farms, then suddenly massacred by a native raid. Women and children on both sides were targets, so the few families in the colony feared for their children. There is fairly compelling evidence that Governor Arthur fully intended to exterminate the native population, not just split the island. He began stockpiling weapons. 
He encouraged settlement by ex-soldiers. He began training civilians in combat techniques. Raids increased, and by 1830, British tolerance, never great at the best of times, snapped. Military operations were stepped up. Bounties were issued to convicts who killed natives. Cordons and watchposts established. Diplomatic pressure was brought to bear on tribes and massacres carried out. Eventually, mass deportations were conducted. Native populations continued to plummet. The convicts didn't get many options here. If they refused to turn to killing natives, they might get killed during the wars. They might be starving and have no real alternative. They wanted coin to buy food. It's not like they could just go home to England instead. Be honest with yourself. Imagine you had been born in early 19th century Manchester and had been starving. You stole a watch and got caught, then a quick trial and a long trip to the colony of New South Wales in Australia. You tried to escape from the colony and got recaptured, putting up a fight. Then you got punished by being sent to Van Diemen's Land. You got chained up made to do hard labour, whipped and tied to stakes in the blazing sun, always at risk of being sent to the utterly dreaded Port Arthur prison. Finally, you were released, lean, hungry, burnt, scarred from the whips. Your whole life has been one of hunger, poverty and suffering, then sent around the world with no hope of return. No one cares if you live or die. Society has told you every day of your life that you are nothing. You've seen cruelties most can never imagine. You beg for scraps of food and scavenge in the gutter. Then one day, another ex-convict you know comes to you. He has a gun from the authorities and one for you. He got them by promising he knew a steady man who would join one of the notorious groups of ex-convicts who hunted the natives accompanied by skilled native trackers. Now, you could turn bush ranger, ride as an outlaw, relying on robbery to survive, be hunted as an outlaw, perhaps put back in chains under the whip, or you could go and kill some of the natives and get paid so you can eat, or at least buy some more gin. The authorities would be off your back, perhaps even the glittering prospect of being granted some land to fight. I think you'd probably think the world is a nasty place. Everyone goes hungry and takes what they can. So why should I give a shit about some native? If I get paid and can eat, they'd kill me if they had the chance. Everyone is the same. Bleak thought indeed. For the military, of course, that was the job. Even if they had only signed up for meals and perhaps a bed, they could be shipped where needed to do whatever was ordered. No matter the shortcomings, the difficulties, no matter the motivations, there were enough forces that the governor could use to resettle, corral and kill the natives. He pushed hard to wipe them out or get them removed from Tasmania. The British won. Despite being worse armed and supplied on the ground than the native tribes, despite being tactically wrong-footed in numerous engagements, despite Failing repeatedly at theatre and operational levels, the British had the massive edge, the long arm of the empire. Her total population dwarfed the native population of Tasmania. More settlers and convicts kept flooding in. 
Supply losses were made good as supply ships arrived, along with replacement guns and ammunition. Manpower, supplies of troops, were essentially inexhaustible. The British were fighting on someone else's land. Everything the British lost could be replaced. But for the natives, every loss was another nail in their coffins. The British Empire had learnt from the Romans. Defeats don't matter. Clever tactics don't matter. All that mattered was the will and the ability to never, ever give up. To raise army after army like the Romans fighting the Carthaginians. Even after the worst imperial losses, an enemy knew the British would come back. From disasters in Afghanistan to the massacre of Isandwala, the message was the same. The great white queen avenges her children, as the saying of the time went. The British would come back, and they would not give up, and eventually they would win. You've all heard about the British losses in Afghanistan, and perhaps the disastrous retreat through the Khyber Pass, the worst military defeat in British history. Well, what is less well remembered today is that Britain sent an army of retribution back to force the pass, relieve besieged garrisons, reorder the political situation, and take revenge. The Zulus, after Islandwala, got a brutal rebuff at Rourke's Drift for going on to lose the Anglo-Zulu War. There's a sort of truism that the British usually start wars with a defeat and a retreat, but don't often lose them. Since 1776, Britain has rarely lost a war. In the Victorian era alone, according to Dr Spencer Jones, the Centre for War Studies, University of Birmingham, in Queen Victoria's 64-year reign, the British fought over 230 wars, winning the vast majority, from Canada to India to the Australias, all the way to Afghanistan, Bhutan and China. To win the war, the indigenous peoples in Australia and Tasmania would not only have had to defeat the British ground forces and the colonists, but do something no nation on earth could have done in the 1830s and 40s, beat the mighty military machine that made empire possible, the Royal Navy. There is quite a big but though. British often didn't particularly want war if they could get beneficial outcomes from trade, political agreements and treaties for land. So instead of going to war with the British, it was often best to offer them the right to trade at the local market with preferential access to the harbour and an agreement to supply cloth at a slightly lower rate than competitors, then a ruler might get a good cash flow from a powerful buyer who was often fanatical about following contractual terms. For many local rulers, this was brilliant. Plenty of cash, increased prestige, access to some of the highest tech kit in the world and improved efficiency. You can see the big stumbling block here in Tasmania, politically, culturally, economically and even architecturally, it was so different from India. The indigenous view of land and property simply didn't extend to that kind of trading behaviour and treaty. And so the British were falling back to their default behaviour of, if no trade, then war, unless the cost of war outweighed the gains. In Van Diemen's land, British authorities knew the writing was on the wall 
even if the indigenous tribes didn't. If the enormous losses in Afghanistan or in the Indian mutiny couldn't check British determination, then no amount of small-scale losses in raids could make a dent. The Secretary of State for the Colonies wrote about Tasmania in November 1830. It is, quote, not unreasonable to apprehend the whole race may at no distinct distant period become extinct, end quote. Eventually, the military pressure was switched to diplomacy and the dwindling number of natives agreed to be relocated to the Bass Islands. You can almost imagine an army administrator in horse guards in London chuckling as he read reports and saying, See, I told Sir George he didn't need India veterans. Would have been a waste to send them. What was to be left in the place? Well, we are especially lucky that in 1839, George Franklin, Surveyor General and Sole Commissioner of Crown Lands, created one of the most wonderful maps I've ever seen. It's a fantastically detailed map of Tasmania and shows the early colony, beautiful coloured inks. It has neat notes, heavy surf, great extensive plains, mountains with lots of woody pines, or small vessel may harbour here, abounds with pines. It also contained counties, parish boundaries, town names and roads. Wanted or not, this was the spread of modern Western civilization. The filling of the, air quotes, empty map with the presence of European-style development. I should emphasise how empty Van Diemen's land would have seemed to the Victorians, used to European population density and buildings, like the Americans migrating west across the US to what was claimed to be virgin land and a seemingly endless abundance of resources, Van Diemen's land seemed to be free and ready for development. As the Victorian period passed, the late Victorians often viewed this process in Darwinian terms, that societies were like animals in nature, where the fittest to adapt and prosper survived. So that inevitably meant that societies didn't, were failing because evolution had made them less suited to exist. That wasn't anywhere near a universal view, but I mention it to you so that you are aware of the immensely different worldview that was driving these events, and it was considered scientific at the time. That might seem stupid to us, but I can guarantee some of our science is influencing how societies act, and it will be thought morally repellent in 200 years' time. Other motives included a burning desire to proselytise and spread Christianity, or just a desperate need for food and space. The view of Van Diemen's land was complicated in Europe. To convicts, it was indeed terrifying. The British government was sometimes sceptical about reforms in New South Wales, as it might lessen the convicts' fear of the law if they were not terrified of being transported. Yet Van Diemen's land was supposedly designed to film the worst of the worst with even more fear. If you were sent to New South Wales, the ultimate threat was to be sent to Van Diemen's land. But like all of the new world of the Australias, it had attractions. Even in the 1830s and 1840s, it was a land with possibilities. As the Dublin Journal said, the climate of this island is healthy 
and much more congenial to the European constitution than Port Jackson. The northwest winds, which are there productive of such violent variations of temperature, are here unknown, and neither the winters nor the summers are subject to any great extremes of heat or cold. Hobart's town, the capital, was founded in 1804 and is situated about nine miles up the Derwent. It is rapidly improving in size and comfort. The settlement Conlontuston has been founded about 30 miles from the mouth of Port Dalrymple and 130 miles in a straight line from Hobartstown. Of the various descriptions of the emigrants, the following are much wanted and if sober and industrious, may calculate upon obtaining full employment and good wages. Brickmakers and masons, plasterers, carpenters and cabinet makers, coopers, wheelwrights, blacksmiths, ships carpenters, painters and glaziers, and unmarried females of good character, who if industrious and deserving, may be sure of getting married in a very short time, end quote. Mainland Australia developed very differently, and the early Australian colonies had to rely on convicts in positions of trust due to shortages amongst the non-convict population. These were sometimes called emancipationists because they had been emancipated from their criminal life. They were joined by increasing numbers of non-criminal settlers, as I covered in episode 33. Van Damen's land was very different. It was still in many ways like the popular image of the Wild West, a land of opportunity and desperate danger, where there were either the lucky or the dead. After all, the legendary Irish cannibal Alexander Pierce had been hung there in 1824. He'd been sent to Van Damen's land for stealing six pairs of shoes in 1819. He had escaped with other prisoners into the bush after they tired of the brutal floggings forced work and dangerous hunting in the bush at risk of native attack. When recaptured, he claimed to have eaten his companions when they ran out of food. He was sent to the prison hell of Sarah Island in Macquarie Arbor for his escape. The authorities clearly didn't believe the cannibalism story because they didn't hang him. He escaped again with the unfortunate young Tom Cox. When he was recaptured, horrified authorities found bits of Tom in Alexander Pierce's pockets. As he said, you never know what hunger will make you do. The authorities gave him the overdue swift hanging. Quite an apocalypse, isn't it? Except that narrative is also incomplete. Just as presenting a narrative of British turning wild land into settled productive imperial territory is incomplete, so is the narrative of the indigenous peoples being corralled murdered and then driven to extinction because there is one more point of view in this story that needs to be told. The indigenous tribes were wiped out in a genocide, that's a fact, but they didn't entirely disappear when the last full-blooded members died. The tribes had mixed-race descendants. According to the Australian novelist Richard Flanagan writing in the Guardian newspaper, quote, The oppression these Aborigines experienced following the so-called Black War led to many paradoxes. The survivors of the invasion fell into two groups. There were those largely descended from the offspring of Aboriginal women stolen or bought 
from Aboriginal tribes in the early 19th century by white sealers and taken to the remote islands in Bass Strait, the sea some hundreds of miles wide that separates Tasmania from Australia. Here, they were used as slave labour and often treated with extreme cruelty. The women sometimes killed the offspring of their liaisons with the sealers. But not all. The ones that survived formed a distinct community in the isolation of the Bass Strait Islands, conscious of their standing and rights as Aborigines. The second group were the descendants of Aborigines who lived on the Tasmanian mainland. Their lives were even more difficult. The assertion of their Aboriginality, courting contempt and discrimination, it was far easier to live as a Tasmanian by not being black. And so many Tasmanian Aboriginals kept quiet about their being blackfellas in the family. And yet, in their family ways, in their traditions and customs, they retained much that marked them as different. End quote. Looking back can be painful, and some advocates for indigenous rights haven't always helped the situation. As the indigenous rights movement organised politically, the National Aboriginal Body, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, known as ATSIC, was to try on the creation of an indigenous electoral role in Tasmania, to vote and be accepted as indigenous people. A potential voter had to prove they were Aboriginal. Previously, anyone could turn up and claim to be indigenous and vote, but now detailed ancestries were required. That was near impossible for many of the mixed race descendants the original inhabitants of Tasmania, especially as many had Samoan, Lascar, Caribbean, Indian, German and Irish ancestors. They were suddenly being deemed not Aboriginal enough in an act of cultural erasure by other indigenous communities. Suddenly, calling this an apocalypse and saying it wiped out the native tribes erases the existence of a whole group of marginalised people who already had to suffer significant racism. Neither the heroic settler narrative nor the apocalypse narrative actually cover the incredible, complex truth of Van Diemen's land. Whatever the truth, it certainly turned the place into a hell for many people. As if that wasn't enough, in the next main episode, we will see the British really turn the dial up to 11 as they turn their attention to making Van Diemen's Land into the harshest prison on earth. You will have to wait until February 2021 for that. Christmas is racing towards us, so I will be aiming to get the Christmas special ready for the 24th of December 2020. Then I'll be taking a break on January 1st, so there will be no main show until the 1st of February. I'll aim to get you a mini-sode mid-January to tide you over. Best wishes. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than 
making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.